6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 36 through 39. We are in Isaiah, and we're finishing, if my uh, notation is correct, we're, we've got four chapters left, and as the cynics say, Isaiah 1, right? And don't be misled, we're talking a unity of a book, one Isaiah, but certainly two different styles, two different subjects, two different approaches, uh, I shouldn't say approaches, but stylistic renderings. Uh, his style will change dramatically in chapter 40. In the first 35 chapters, being of a certain weight, a certain meter, a certain uh, style of writing. Don't be confused that there's plenty of evidence to show that the book is, has integrity of design, clearly of one author, despite some other foolishness that floats around. But the Bible itself makes it clear there's one Isaiah. We, we, I think we've dealt with that. And if we have time at the end, I'll review that for you. But so we keep moving. What I'd like to do tonight is address chapter 36. I believe we'll get through chapter 39 tonight. These are four chapters that constitute sort of a parenthetical, historical insert. Because... Uh, 35, Isaiah relieved the pressure of the previous chapters by focusing on the kingdom blessings, and that's great. But chapter 36 is going to shift gears. He's going to talk historically for four chapters. It's a narrative. In fact, it's the parallel passages are 2 Kings 18, verse 13, through 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 26. There's a segment of 2 Kings that is so close to this, many scholars believe they were written in 2 Kings by Isaiah. That would not be surprising. Isaiah, unlike many of the prophets that were, so to speak, from the hill country or whatever, our image of some of those prophets is more analogous to John the Baptist in terms of being a, a man of the woods, if you will. Isaiah, quite the contrary, at court of extremely high rank, direct access to the king, highly respected in the office of the prophet. Isaiah is a lofty education. His vocabulary is the largest of any of the writers in the Old Testament. His linguistic style, the most rich and varied. He is just incredibly, um, almost every, if you study rhetoric or writing, there are just dozens of mechanisms he, he uses. Almost every known rhetorical device is used by Isaiah somewhere in his writing. So it's very high stuff. So for him to have been at court and have, for him to have assumed the duty to bring up to date a portion of the Second Kings would not be surprising. But that's why it shouldn't surprise us to see those passages so parallel. Second Chronicles, chapters 32 and 33, are also of this particular period. Easy material in the sense that it's pretty direct narrative, and unlike the double and triple meaning stuff that uh, we've been going through, where Isaiah is dealing with prophetically something near-term, and yet embodied in that are allusions to the end time. So that makes his work very challenging, very rich, but very challenging. 
But this is narrative and, and should go a little more smoothly, although it deals with some interesting things. Let's back up a little bit and talk about the historical context that we're going to be dealing with here. Ahaz was a bad king. His successor was Hezekiah, the king under which Isaiah served. Hezekiah, in general, did pretty well. He tore down the idols throughout the land, on the high ground, the groves, as they were sometimes called. He tore these down and reestablished worship to the true living God in Jerusalem. That'll turn out to be misunderstood by his enemies. We'll see that shortly. Now, Hezekiah's anxiety comes from the imminent attack of Sennacherib of the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire had existed for hundreds of years. It was extremely powerful. It was undefeated. Every peoples that it faced, it was able to conquer. In those days, the whole business of conquest was more than just plunder. Yes, there was economic and political reasons too, but also a major motivation was to prove that my God is bigger than your God kind of thing. So if you conquered a people, it proved that the God you worshipped was better than the God they worshipped. And so they took great pride in not only the peoples they conquered, but the idols and gods and religions that fell under their heel. And so that will come up uh, shortly. The king of Assyria at the time was Sennacherib. Sennacherib, which means sin multiplies its brothers. I think I mentioned that to you. The word sin in Assyrian, now we use the word sin from the old English archery term to miss the mark. The word sin in Assyrian meant the moon god. The symbol for the moon god, by the way, was the crescent moon. And there is a widespread religious movement under the banner of the crescent moon that we all want to do some homework on as time goes on here. Islam. It's interesting that the roots go back to some of these issues. The enemies of God. It's interesting that the Islamic tenets, the thing that unite these very diverse peoples, the two billion of them throughout the world, is hatred of Israel. It's interesting. Here we are seeing some of the early vestiges of that, if you will. Okay, now Hezekiah is panicked, in a sense, and you would be too. See, you and I have very little grasp of what a siege is like. It's one thing to be conquered in a battle. It's quite another to have your town under siege where they starve you out, where the people turn to cannibalism, ultimately. If you do any reading of the ancient experiences with siege craft, it's grim, frightening business. And here's Hezekiah, and the Assyrians are on the march and they're threatening him. He actually paid protection money. He actually gave them substantial monies. We'll look at that shortly to, to be left alone, but they ignore that. And he makes alliances with Egypt, which are useless. In the words of Isaiah, God tells him through Isaiah that you're wasting your time. Don't look to Egypt. Look to the God of Israel. And even the Assyrians make fun of their would-be alliance with Egypt. But we'll see what happens here shortly. It's kind of colorful stuff, so we should enjoy it. Let's jump into chapter 36, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of Hezekiah that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now when it says all, that's a broad term. It's obviously Jerusalem is accepted because that's what we're going to focus on. But the point is the perimeter is fallen. These other cities of Judah have fallen. 
Verse 2, And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. Now, Rabshakeh is not really a name, it's a title. And it's the chief officer under the king. This is an entourage that Sennacherib sends to intimidate and request surrender from Judah. Lachish was their field capital. Their actual capital was Nineveh, but their field capital is Lachish and uh, the command post. And he sends Rabshakeh to Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him three people. Eliakim, Helkiah's son, who was over the house. Shebna, the scribe. This may not be the same Shebna that we read about earlier in Isaiah. So don't get, you know, that's not an issue. And Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. So these three are commissioned by Hezekiah to receive the entourage from the enemy. And Rabshakeh said to them, Rabshakeh now goes into quite a diatribe here. Rabshakeh says unto him, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which thou trustest? Now as we read this, let's, it's easy for us to sort of play spectator and watch smugly from the sidelines this ancient event. But as we do this, we might make it a little more active for ourselves. As Rabshakeh challenges Hezekiah, Rabshakeh is saying, to, in effect, to the king's emissaries, what confidence is this in which thou trustest? And while we're talking about this, you might think seriously about who you trust. And yes, the glib answers I know, but I mean really. I say, Rabshakeh continues, verse 5, I say, Sayest thou, but they are but vain words, I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, on which, if a man lean on it, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So is Rabshakeh making fun of this alliance with Egypt. Now, trust us in the staff of this, actually it says bruised reed, and a reed that's bruised loses its compressive strength. It, it bends, it breaks, it's useless. And so the idea is that uh, if you lean on that staff, it'll, it'll pierce your hand. In other words, it's, in other words, it's ineffective, ineffective. And uh, so, uh, so is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. And that's sort of the question of the hour. Who are we trusting? Now, these are ancient battles, so forth, but idiomatically, we all face the same thing. We face some real challenges, all of us in this room. And we glibly say and nod in agreement when we're in a Bible study, well, we trust the Lord. Do you really? That's the question you can mull over tonight as you drive home. Or do we trust in Egypt, the world? Tough call. Tough call. We want to be pragmatic on the one hand, and yet, who do you really trust? And is God putting you in a position to raise that issue in your life? He is in mine. It's interesting. Who do you really trust? And of course, it's moment by moment, day by day. Verse 7. But if thou say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away, and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar? Now here's a case where Rabshakeh has been misinformed. 
his spies, his intelligence agencies, were correct in the data they got, but they misunderstood it. They observed through their mechanisms that all through Judah, Hezekiah had torn down, had made, had caused to be torn down the altars, the idols, the groves, the wood hinges, if you will, and what have you, that worshiped the host of heaven, if you recall, when we studied that, that uh, Baal was their name for Mars. Tied up in this idol worship was astrological overtones. Anyway, all of that paraphernalia, all of that furniture, if I can call it, all that apparatus, established by, has torn down by Hezekiah to worship what? The living God in accordance with his commandment, which was the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. Rabshakeh and the Assyrians misunderstood that. They sort of assumed that what Hezekiah was really doing was tearing down the field altars to force centralized worship in Jerusalem as some kind of ego trip of his own. And they presume that the tearing down of those altars offended the God they worshipped. See, they were not perceptive enough to realize the real issue at hand. See, if thou say to me, we trust the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah taken away? Now, they didn't understand that those were not the Lord God's altars, quite the contrary. They just happened to be the altars that the previous king put up in defiance of the God of the Torah. Then he goes on, verse 8, Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses, if thou be able to, on thy part, to set riders upon them. That's a taunt. You see, here I got my army. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you got anybody competent to ride them. You know. How then will thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Rabshakeh is laying it on him. Now, we're going to find out in a few verses here. Rabshakeh is speaking in Hebrew. That's pretty skillful on his part because he's Assyrian. And the entourage from Hezekiah wishes he would speak in Aramaic, not Hebrew. Why? Because they're in front of the city of, of the of the of the Jerusalem's walls. And up on the wall are all the soldiers, and they're hearing all this, and they just as soon not hear disdainful remarks about their capability. We'll see that shortly, but so you get the feeling here. So Rabshakeh is talking not just to the emissaries in front of him, but he's talking in the hearing of the troops on the wall. And he's speaking in Hebrew. So he goes on, he says, verse 10, And am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said unto me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then said Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, under Abshekah, Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Aramaic language, for we understand it, and speak not to us in the Jews' language, in the hearing of the people that are on the wall. Now, these three guys are a little naive. They don't realize that Rabshakeh knows exactly what he's doing. He's obviously rather shrewd in what you might consider today propaganda, or in the art of that uh, propaganda. Verse 12, But Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their own refuse? and drink their own water with you. Now what the illusion is here, and the language is even the polite King James, I think you understand what he's really saying. 
Okay. And what he's alluding to is that if they keep it up, if they don't surrender, they're going to be under siege. Now, you and I, again, we have very little perception of what sieges are like, because that's just not our experience, or even in, in recent enough history that you may have done any reading about it. But uh, the primary defense of the ancient cities, of course, was the city wall. Even people that lived outside the wall and under times of pressure would withdraw within the wall. And the strength of the city was in many respects measured by the effectiveness of the wall and the logistic supplies. That's why Babylon, when Babylon rose to power, one reason it was so powerful is that, first of all, its walls were incredible, 15 miles on a side, several hundred feet high, and thick enough to race chari- have chariot races around the top. And it was also fed by the Euphrates, so they had plenty of water supply to sustain a siege, and the river also made a moat in addition. There was a double wall, actually, with a moat between. So in other words, all those things are part of it. But if you were king of one of these cities and you woke up one morning and walked down the city wall and you saw your enemy on the horizon, they were getting ready to conduct a siege. Now, a siege, unlike our little movie entertainments and things, wasn't just a question of, you know, surrounding the wall with a bunch of siege machines and swords and and, and bows and arrows and things. What they typically would do is they'd be prepared to seal the city off. Uh, The Syrians did this, the Babylon, all the way through. The Romans developed this to a very fine art. If you were, if you read the campaigns of the Romans, if you're familiar with the practices of the Roman army, you knew that they knew their business. When you enlisted in the Roman army, you enlisted for 25 years. Of course, when you finished that, you were uh, well taken care of. But the point is, when the Romans would surround a city in Europe in their campaign, they'd be prepared to camp around that city for 15, 20 years if necessary. They would seal it off. They'd build literally a wall around it. Typically, they'd cut down forest, make it wood. They'd block it. They'd put ramparts, and they would just, no one would go in or out. And they'd just wait till they surrendered. Didn't have to fight them. Now, yes, they did. They had siege machines and all that, too. But the point is, they would be prepared to starve them out. Now, that's what the illusion is here, is to lay siege and drive the population within the city to cannibalism, there are stories of the mothers eating their young, that kind of stuff. And so Rabshakeh's remarks here, that the, speaking to these soldiers, that they may eat their own refuge and drink their own water is graphic of what his threat to them is. And he's making it directly to them, not just through their emissaries, by speaking in their own native language. Then verse 13, Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present. And come out to me, and eat every one of his vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink every one of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? See, that's again the yardstick he's using. 
The fact that what his assertion is, is that since every enemy that we've come up against has fallen to our hand, that proves that our God is stronger than their gods. Where are the gods that protected our previous adversaries? Nowhere. That's his argument. Verse 19, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharvarim? And, and, and have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that they have delivered their land out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? His argument's understandable. He's arguing from his point of view that all the gods of their enemies have fallen. But see, from our perspective, we realize he's made a huge mistake. A huge mistake. Because now the issue isn't Judah. The issue is God's own reputation. You know, he has roused the mighty one of Israel, as we'll shortly see. You know, it's interesting, as we read these stories, we can smugly watch from the mezzanine. We sort of see it from the advantage of where we are in history, right? But you know, that's the key to life. That's what the book of Job is all about. Everybody says, well, the book of Job is about joy through suffering. Or, excuse me, uh, why do the innocent suffer? If that's what the book of Job is about, it's never really answered. What is the book of Job really all about? And I'm going to suggest to you the book of Job is, what it's really all about is getting the divine viewpoint. When we read the book of Job, we have the advantage that Job did not have of hearing the conversation between Satan and God in the front end. And we watch the drama from the heavenly viewpoint. We have a whole different perspective. And the amazing thing is Job's conduct in the absence of that viewpoint. But you see, that's the challenge in our lives. We're buried in the detail and the anxieties and the challenges of the moment day by day. And yet it's hard for us to stand back and say, okay, how does this look from God's point of view? Once we do that, things are often very clear, if we'll just do that. And we watch this whole narrative and we sort of smile because we know that Reb Sheka is going to have his clock set here shortly. But see, that's because we have the divine viewpoint. We have the, the, the comfort of looking at this from the divine viewpoint. And that's one of the things you might carry away with us tonight, is recognize the same thing's true in our lives. We have to, from time to time, hit reveal codes, don't we? In case you don't know, follow what I'm saying. I'm alluding to the word processing packages. You know that there's a key. You normally, you, you, what you type, you just see what you're going to print. And behind that, there are thousands of codes that set the font and the sizes and the tabs and the margins and the vertical and all this stuff you didn't even know had to be dealt with. That the software package. Every once in a while, though, you need to deal with that. Maybe change some things. You can push a button, typically reveal codes, and typically in some other color or some way on the screen. Not only the text you're typing, but all these other codes that set the font and the sizes and all that show up. So you hit reveal codes and you make the adjustments to change something. But then as soon as you do that, you generally hit it again to have it go away because it gets in the way. I mean, you really want to focus on what you see. What you see is what you get kind of thing. Well, see, that's the problem in our lives. We need a reveal code situation so we can see the spiritual battle going on around us. And we're going to see some of that here shortly again. Verse 20, who, who are they among all the gods of these lands that they have delivered their land out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of, out of my hand? Verse 21 shows you that these guys were, had been well instructed and they were obedient. Because in verse 21 it says, but they held their peace, they being the three from Hezekiah, his entourage. 
They held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. In other words, they were instructed to go receive him, get his words, don't respond, bring him back to the boss. Okay? So that's what they did. They held their peace. They didn't take the bait. They didn't get into a, you know, an entanglement here. They just did what they were supposed to. Verse 22. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah, with their clothes torn, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. They tore their clothes, the classic Jewish gesture of anguish, sort of the first step toward sackcloth and ashes. And uh, it was illegal, improper for the high priest to tear his clothes, even though he did do it in the illegal trial that we read about in the Gospels. But in general, uh, that w- there were certain cases where that was prohibited, but even so it made it more that much more dramatic. But the point is, in this case, though, they tore their clothes. This was their way of expressing to the king their anguish, their uh, stress over the way, uh, uh, not only the way they've been treated, but the threat that lurked here, the very tangible, very uh, visible uh, threat that they were under from this leader of the Assyrian army. Which brings us to chapter 37. It came to pass, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Now I'm going to risk a little conjecture here to suggest a few things that he probably had on his heart when he went to the house of the Lord. Because what he, the problem he's facing is the same problem you and I face. I mean, we have, we, we have our Rabshakas. We have our Assyrian armies that we face in various forms. Sometimes they're financial, sometimes they're emotional. They're always spiritual. Okay. You might turn to Psalm 5015. Psalm 5015. So in case you haven't marked it, you may want to do that. And some of you, if you're where I'm at, you may even want to put a tab by it. The New Testament equivalent is sort of, you know, Romans 8.28. I check that about three times a day to make sure it's still there and no one's removed it. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.